0: This is Sarah Lemon, author of The Whole Dish blog and food writer for the Mail Tribune newspaper in Southern Oregon. This podcast is produced for the Mail Tribune and Rosebud Media. You can find it online at mailtribune.com forward slash and read my blog, The Whole Dish at mailtribune.com forward slash lifestyle forward slash the hyphen whole hyphen dish. Specialty salts were the stuff of my most recent food section column. Those also run under the name The Whole Dish every other week in the Mail Tribune's food section a la carte. The column that ran January 27th had the headline Salty Solutions, and it acknowledged Americans' sort of love-hate relationship with salt, the dual nature of salt, that we need it for our survival. It's an essential nutrient, but it's one that we get far too much of compromising American's health. And that's been the stance of the federal government according to its dietary guidelines for Americans for decades now. And the latest are no different. The government has made it clear that processed food, the food processing industry, is the source of the vast majority of salt in our diets. If you cut back on your processed foods, you significantly reduce your sodium intake. Earlier in January, I wrote a column encouraging cooks to explore spices first as a way of seasoning their foods before reaching for the salt shaker in a bid for better health and more interesting recipes in your kitchen. And this column followed up on that with some information about the wide variety of specialty salts out there that are available. It can really take your cooking in an exciting new direction. It's important to recognize first, however, that not all salts are created equal. Just like there are low quality fats and sugars, there are lower quality salts and becoming acquainted with each of them is sort of the first step in choosing which is most appropriate for your cooking method, which fits into your budget, and generally speaking, what's most relevant to your diet. There are mind salts, and there are sea salts, sort of two very broad categories. But within each of those categories, there are varying degrees of quality. One of the things that my column didn't really delve into, because it's a broad topic, are the presence and potential presence of microplastics from the ocean present in sea salts. I fielded a question from a reader wanting to know more on this topic and if she should stick with mind salts, meaning salts that were formed from ancient seabeds that would not have been contaminated by plastic. There's varying schools of thought on this. There's varying preferences. I told her that over The decades of reporting on food and nutrition, experts have most frequently cited Himalayan pink salt and Celtic sea salt for diets that aim to be as natural as possible, whether they're whole foods diets, raw foods diets, paleo, vegan, whatever it happens to be. Those salts specifically have sort of this all natural connotation. But of course, we all know that as Our natural environment is changing and pollution is making a big impact. It can creep into so many areas of our food supply. Microplastics have been the subject of a number of consumer studies over the years looking at sea salts. And it is true. The majority of sea salts on the market have some level of contamination from microplastics, according to various sources. It's also pretty clear that the most likely salts to be contaminated, the highest levels of microplastics come from sea salts produced in Asian countries, including Indonesia, sort of that Pacific rim areas that also are known to have very high levels of plastic pollution. Obviously the two would go hand in hand. Sea salts typically are made. When seawater evaporates from shallow pools, basically leaving behind anything that's solid. So, what's left with the salt is a matter of how conscientious the company is in its production, in my mind. I did some more researching today and found an article by Jacobson Salt Company, which, of course, is from Oregon. And their assurance for consumers that their ultra-fine filters ensure that there are no microplastics present in their salts. Jacobson is one of the salts that I have currently in my kitchen, along with several others. There's gris, one of the classic sort of ubiquitous French salts. It's a sea salt, and it's formed when salt in salt ponds falls below the surface of the water and attracts other minerals and it takes on this grayish hue. It's named for the word gray in French. That salt is sort of moist and coarse and it's great for grinding up in a mortar and pestle with some herbs and spices, even seaweeds and dried mushrooms, as I mentioned in my most recent column. That column Under the headline, Salty Solutions can be found at mailtribune.com forward slash lifestyle forward slash the hyphen whole hyphen dish. I also have Hawaiian black salt, which is a sea salt produced from the island of Molokai, which has some of the most pristine waters in the world. It's mixed with activated charcoal from coconut shells before it's evaporated. That's one of my favorites for sprinkling on raw tomatoes in the summertime. Just any fresh produce where it just really pops. Now, as it absorbs, it does start to streak the food and turn it slightly black. But when it's immediately presented, it's just gorgeous. I love it. I also have a very obscure salt produced in a nature preserve on the border of Slovenia and Croatia. It's produced using traditional methods dating to the 14th century. A friend who had traveled to Eastern Europe brought it back for me. And it's just a beautiful, snowy white, perfectly tinted, perfectly textured salt. Sort of like everyone's ideal of what salt should be. And it's easy to see based on this salt, why salt was exchanged for currency back in the day when these methods were being developed for producing this salt in this particular part of the world. Now, none of those salts really concern me in terms of their purity. In addition to Celtic sea salt, I did some researching on its website as well. As with so many things, the responsibility lies with consumers to do their research And the general rule of thumb holds true with salts. Again, it's been exchanged over the millennia for currency. You get what you pay for. And if you're buying an ultra fine quality salt, you can expect to get a fine quality product and use it sparingly to really highlight its flavor and texture. I've had most of these salts in my cupboard for years because they keep forever. Salt doesn't go bad unless it's mixed with herbs and things that can go off. I did have one salt that was mixed like with some roasted garlic, I think, and that's not meant for long-term storage. That was more of a gimmick by a spice company, but just pure salt will keep in your pantry in perpetuity. And it just takes a little bit of these fine quality salts, just a pinch. The salt I am concerned with is the quote unquote sea salt from the bulk bins at grocery stores where I shop, where the provenance is maybe not so clear. That's a source that I'm rethinking, unsure of whether I want to continue buying sea salts that could potentially be contaminated Or if just plain old table salt or kosher salt made by solution mining is the better way to go. Again, everyone has to make their own decisions for their own health. But do some research. Find out what forms of salt seem appropriate for you and your family and your cooking. And then take the time to get to know them. If you can, just buy a small quantity and take a taste. I cited the Spice and Tea Exchange in Ashland as a source for fine quality salts where you can buy very small quantities of some of these and try them out. Of course, all of these are readily available online in various quantities, likely a few ounces, and can be obtained at a reasonable price. But have fun with it. Find out what you like and which dishes these salts complement. In the spirit of sea salt, I did post to my blog a recipe for salted butter and chocolate chunk shortbread cookies that I thought I would give in this podcast is yet more reason to become acquainted with specialty salt and use it. This recipe is courtesy of Tribune News Service, and it's originally from the book Dining In by Allison Roman. It does call for salted butter specifically, which we've all heard over the years that cooks should choose unsalted butter in the majority of applications, particularly baking. So you can control the salt you're putting in your food. But for this recipe and other sort of salted dessert recipes, which have been trendy the past decade or so, choosing salted butter really does bring out that savor and makes the other flavors pop. So it calls for 18 tablespoons, which is two and a quarter sticks. You want to cut that into half inch pieces. It also calls for a half cup granulated sugar, which is white sugar, a quarter cup light brown sugar, one teaspoon vanilla extract, two and a quarter cups all-purpose flour, eight ounces semi-sweet or bittersweet dark chocolate chopped into chunks. Don't chop it too fine if made this mistake in recipes because then it just sort of, disintegrates into the batter and you don't get that nice chunk of chocolate that you're looking for. One large egg that's been beaten, demerara or turbinado sugar for rolling this block of cookie dough, basically sort of like the sugar version of fine salt and demomera sugar and flaky sea salt or kosher salt for sprinkling. But if I was choosing, I would choose that cell which is pretty affordable And, you know, fairly coarse, you really get that pop of salt. Again, you can crush it up even more in a mortar and pestle very easily. You can find this recipe on my most recent blog post from January 27th under the headline, Sprinkle of Sea Salt Makes Shortbread Not Too Sweet. Start salted butter and chocolate chunk shortbread cookies by lining one or two rimmed baking sheets with parchment paper. Using an electric mixer in a medium bowl or a stand mixer fitted with a paddle attachment, beat the salted butter, the 18 tablespoons, two and a quarter sticks, with both the sugars, the half cup granulated sugar and the quarter cup light brown sugar, along with the teaspoon vanilla extract on medium high speed until it's very light and fluffy for three to five minutes. Use a spatula to scrape down the sides of the bowl With the mixer on low, add the two and a quarter cups all-purpose flour, followed by the eight ounces of semi-sweet or bittersweet dark chocolate chunks and beat just to blend those together. Divide the dough in half, placing each half on a large piece of plastic wrap. Fold the plastic over so that it covers the dough, and this will protect your hands from getting too sticky as well. Use your hands to form the dough into a log shape about two to two and a half inches in diameter. Rolling it on the counter will help to smooth it out. It doesn't have to be perfectly even. Refrigerate until very firm for about two hours. When you're ready to bake, preheat the oven to 350 degrees Fahrenheit. Brush the outside of those dough logs, take the plastic wrap off, with the beaten egg and then roll them in the demomera or turbinado sugar. Slice each log into half-inch thick rounds, place them on the prepared baking sheets about an inch apart, and sprinkle with the flaky salt. You could also use Himalayan pink salt if you've got that in a grinder. That can be really nice as well. Bake in the preheated oven until the edges are just beginning to brown for 12 to 15 minutes, and then cool on a baking sheet for one minute, then transfer to a wire rack. That makes about 32 salted butter and chocolate chunk shortbread cookies. Find that recipe on my most recent blog post at mailtribune.com forward slash lifestyle forward slash the hyphen whole hyphen dish, as well as a recipe for salted chunky peanut butter cookies with that column I mentioned from the Mail Tribune's food section published january 27th under the headline salty solutions and read more about salt in that column again found at mealtribune.com forward slash lifestyle forward slash the hyphen whole hyphen dish thanks for listening to and reading the whole dish